watchers in the fourth dimension. Memes from after your time. Susan had said the library would be destroyed by monsters. You're not in shortage now, young lady. Hello and welcome to another bonus episode of Watchers in the Fourth Dimension. I'm Anthony. And I'm Julie. And this episode, it's just the two of us, as we discuss Julie's very first experience of Big Finish. So, as we have come towards the end of the First Doctor's era, Julie expressed a desire to give some audio Doctor Who a try, and I gave her her choice of First Doctor's story, and you chose... The Library of Alexandria. Which is a companion chronicle narrated by Ian Chesterton himself, William Russell. This particular story was written by a gentleman by the name of Simon Gurrier, who has been writing Doctor Who in both literary and audio formats since 2002. He's written three novels connected with the show, 16 short stories, two comic strips, and over 20 audio dramas, so he is quite prolific. And this was directed by all-rounder Lisa Berman, who has ample credits in the Hooniverse as both an actress and a director. She actually appeared on the TV show in 1989, and she has continued with Big Finish, playing several parts, most notably Professor Bernie Summerfield. And she's also a really, really regular director for Big Finish. So with that, Julie, before we get into actually talking about the story, what did you think of the format of Doctor Who on audio? Did it work for you? It did. What was interesting about it is um, I found it interesting that they limited the number of narrators just to the two. I don't know if they do that across the board with all the big finish. And at first I was like, well, why didn't they get anyone to voice anyone else? But then kind of looking back on it, when you break into having so many different characters, then you run the risk of going to different points of view too many times. And once I kind of got used to that style, I really like just getting the focus from two of the characters. So kind of like when you're watching it on screen and there will be episodes focused on particular characters, that's kind of what they did with this audio. Yeah, so Big Finish have several kind of different formats. Their original work, which they initially did with the 5th, 6th, 7th, and 8th Doctors, and have now branched into the 4th and a few others, was full cast audio drama, so Mm -hmm. audio theatre basically. And then because they obviously don't have the 1st, 2nd, and 3rd Doctors still around, they started trying to handle those eras with this Companion Chronicles format, which is, you know, taking one of the original characters and doing what they kind of describe as like an enhanced audiobook where they have a narrator and and a couple of other voices. Mm -hmm. And as they've kind of moved along and and become a bit more comfortable with recasting some of the characters, they've started giving the full audio drama treatment to the early Doctors as well, using a mix of people like William Russell to voice the first Doctor, as well as recasting some of the characters. Okay, and I think that makes sense because they're probably being maybe a little overcautious, but cautious about stepping on, on toes and things like that. You have people who are like, well, you can't have other actors being them on screen, so can you do it in audio? But I do think it worked. I am an avid audiobook listener, and I've listened to both styles of full theater as well as just the regular narration. So it wasn't too much of a move for me to kind of Uh, get used to the audio right i guess one question i have for you in particular on this was this one was narrated by william russell did he kind of recapture the character of ian for you i mean this was recorded in i think 2013 he would have been 88 at the time he's 95 now still alive was he able to bring back the magic of ian 
Yeah, so the way I kind of looked at it is you can tell from his voice that he's older. And the way I look at it is kind of him telling a story as an older gentleman. So I kind of imagine him and, and Babs telling their grandchildren this story. And then having the parts with Hypatia, who's one other narrated character, kind of being like the flashback um, to it. So that's kind of the way I took it. Uh, but for that, it really worked because I do think that he still embodies Ian. Yes, maybe he doesn't sound as young and swashbuckling as we'll so call it when he was in the original, but it very easily fell into, oh, this is Ian. This was the first time I'd listened to this one as well. So you and I, we didn't get together and listen to it, but you know, we experienced it at more or less the same time, albeit with a few days gap. I think they do a good job at having these characters successfully kind of recreated by their original actors, even though they sound older. So, do you want to talk about the story itself? Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. Okay, so, episode one. This was an interesting little story, I think. I say little, it's only two episodes, which feels a little out of place for the first Doctor Zero, but we set the scene, we land in, what was it, 4th century AD, Alexandria, 5th, 6th, somewhere in those... Uh, yeah, I think it's fourth, but it could be wrong. I thought it was kind of a fairly plodding story, almost in the way that a first Doctor story would be. <laughs> yeah, the beginning was a little, you know, it's like, all right, where are we? What's going on? How long does it take for us to get to the TARDIS crew? Yeah, what I find interesting with these is the the kind of soundscapes they build. I know you probably will want to talk a little bit about the use of music, because I know you, but the music, the description of that the characters give of the landscape and the cityscape paints i think a really really vivid and visual picture even though we can't see it absolutely and the use of sound and music is something that really adds to that oh yeah that's probably one of the big highlights that i found and again this is as you mentioned kind of that mix between theater and audio narration and i've listened to other audiobooks and such that have some music, but it's usually used much more sparingly. It's typically in between cutscenes and things like that. Whereas here, they fully utilized it to really paint that picture. So when they're on the docks, it sounds like you're at the docks and everything like that. So I really did enjoy that. And I think that talks a lot about Big Finish getting their start in doing full cast audio drama with a soundscape where they've mastered that. So they're blending it well with an enhanced audiobook. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And not only just talking about the soundscape and things like that, at the very end, they had the full soundtrack. Yes. So you could just listen to the music and the sounds and everything. And I thought that was fantastic because you wouldn't think that a little two-part 30-minute episode thing would have a soundtrack, but it does. Right. And Big Finish are great with that. They've always made a lot of their music available as part of the release. So good. So good. All right, we had all the doc stuff and things like that, and we finally get to where the rest of the TARDIS crew comes in, and him doing the impression of William Hartnell. You can tell it's not exactly the Doctor, but it totally sounds like Ian pretending to be, be the Doctor and having known him for so long. Right. And so it's just really fun because you don't want to miss those things. So the fact that they gave him some of the leeway to be like, all right, since we're going to have this partially be a drama, pretend to be William Hartnell. See how this goes. Oh, that actually worked. His Barbara and Susan, not so great. 
but you do what you can. Right, right. And I think at his age, it's fairly difficult to impersonate <laughs> a teenage girl and a woman in her probably, what, early 30s, early to mid 30s. What did you think of the setting itself, kind of Alexandria and obviously the associated library? Was that a good kind of concept for a Doctor Who story? I think it was, and especially given that they did describe that they were there for a good amount of time. You have Ian and Barbara, who are school teachers, and they meet up with some of the other teachers and just people who go to that library all the time and study. So it was actually got to see into them being scholars more than we got to see on the show, for the most part. So I think that really worked, especially with actually showing the pairing of Ian and Hypatia and having them talk about science and things like that, I think was was a good thing for those characters. Yeah, I agree. And I think it really brings Doctor Who back to its original educational remit. I mean, Mm -hmm. this isn't going out to a general audience. This is predominantly being bought by fans, but they're going to a place of learning. We hear a lot about ancient scientists and ancient philosophers, it just through the the course of conversation. Yeah, and they even, you know, were describing how the scrolls got created, how large they were, how they would sort them and things like that, which, you know, is very interesting, especially in a time when people don't go to libraries as often, to even see how libraries would have worked without books per se but with scrolls and everything was just a fun little twist now i think some of it might have been a little bit a little overboard when they're talking about like the two different groups not talking to each other acquisitions versus that okay a little drama there but i did like that yeah and i mean i think it says something that i mean as i've been quite open on the podcast i have both a bachelor's and a master's in history and i learn things in this it's doing what it's meant to do it's teaching us things I think it's very successful in that. Yeah, and I love some of the stuff. I think it gets discussed a little bit more in the the next episode as well. But when they start thinking, hey, aren't we getting close to when things happen to the library? And Susan kind of goes on her little thing about, oh, well, they say this happened. But then they also say that some say it was water creatures. Some said it was a fire. Some said it was this. And that was fun. There's a lot of fables and tales and things that get told about the Library of Alexandria, which, okay, I'll go on my little diatribe now. (laughs) For the longest time, we all hear the story that, oh, the Library of Alexandria burned to the ground and we lost all of this information and it partially led to the Dark Ages. And then come to find out that that's a whole bunch of crap. So I did a little bit of research before doing this story because I originally wanted to do this so I could go on my rant, but I'm going to go on a different rant. Because what I found is that really the library didn't burn in one go. Obviously, throughout the many centuries it was open, it had multiple fires because you have people working with papyrus with candles. So open flame and dry paper don't really go well together. Who knew? Little known fact. I know, right? And really that the library just started to die out because as years go on, all of that information traveled to other places. So what used to be centralized had now already been disseminated to all these other places. And after I think one of the big fires, they had a daughter library that they moved to. And then the biggest thing was that they purged all the intellectuals out of Alexandria in a certain era and so obviously you don't need a library if you got rid of all the intellectuals so eventually it just died on its own and so i'm like so how come in the year 2020 people are still saying oh the fire of the library of alexandria when it didn't happen okay great thank you 
I just wanted to talk through that because it was something that I learned not through this story, but because of this story. So are you sure it wasn't sea monsters? I mean, to be fair, they don't have video evidence that it just kind of just stopped doing its thing. So it could have been sea monsters. Could. I did think it was quite funny that during Susan's, well, it could have been this, it could have been that. And then she laughs at the suggestion that it could have been attacked by sea monsters. And I was like, oh, well, we all know what's coming next then. Sea monsters. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Damn monsters. it, Susan. But not not just any sea monsters. No. We get these shape-shifting, crazy, fluffy-tailed sea monsters. Which, why would something that lives in the sea have a fluffy tail... I have no idea. But obviously, from a audio perspective, you can very easily have these things be shapeshifters and do whatever you want because you don't have to worry about doing special effects. Right, and that was one thing I feel like we really get to start getting into that description of them in episode two. So let's let's move on, on to episode two, that is. And I think the one thing I really thought at that point is the attack on the waterfront that happens with the Mim. It's very vivid, it's got a great soundscape, and there is no way they could have done it on TV in 1964. Absolutely not. And I think that's one of the great advantages of the format. They can do crazy stuff like that that they just couldn't have ever done. And... And even nowadays, I think it would be hard to do the same level. Like, you could still have shapeshifters, but to go to the such extremes that they had and made it make logical sense, I don't think they could really pull off. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, they were very Lovecraftian, I think, in the way they were described. Between the tentacles, the fluffy tails, being kind of shapeshifters, it was all that kind of cosmic horror theme. I definitely agree. And I don't read a ton of Lovecraft and everything, but I am familiar with some of the monsters and things. And I really enjoyed the men. They sound kind of crazy and bizarre. Now, do I think they're going to crazy extremes about a book that got misplaced? Maybe a little bit. You probably <laughs> didn't need to kill off a whole bunch of people and destroy a city. But, you know, that, that book just meant a lot. But what the doctor did to get their attention was such a doctor thing to do. And that really made me excited. Yeah, it was very, very cool. Oh, again, I love when the doctor does a very doctor thing and him finding that mirror box and being like, you know what, I can use this to bother this creature and just be like, hmm, I need to talk with you. And my other favorite is the fact that they talked about him grabbing his lapels. Very, very vivid Hartnell action there. Yes. Like, what does the doctor do? Because first doctor did so many things with movement and those chuckles and all that other stuff that he does that I was afraid that they couldn't have any of that. But the fact that they included the lapel pieces and had the chuckles really helped make me realize that it was the first doctor right to your point when you talked about how he got their attention combining slightly more recent technology but not cutting edge in his spectacles with the technology of the time to focus the greek fire i mean that that was very first doctor that feels like something straight out of the romans oh absolutely and then when he faces down the mim again that reminded me of the way he kind of Although it was a silent moment in the War Machines, but the way he faces down that War Machine, just kind of that defiant, I know you could crush me, but I'm right? still going to stand up and tell you how it is. It's so interesting because the fact that he's so imposing that other aliens and such like actually listen to him is to a certain degree astounding. Like again, when you have the Mim, who are these giant shapeshifters who could just turn their head into a lion's head and eat him, and he's just like, no, 
I'm just going to sit there and tell them that they're wrong. And it's amazing that they listened. <laughs> yeah. Do you think this benefits from having a fan write it? So someone who really, really understands the characters and can get those kind of nuances and personalities in a way that it just makes you think, oh yeah, that's the first Doctor. I think it does. Again, as long as you have someone who's a fan but also is a good writer, then that works. Obviously, you can have people who are fans and are not good writers, and so that wouldn't work. But I think in the long run, it does help. Now, from our perspective, especially when the was done it was years and years and years after the first doctor so you have that ability to see the entire run of the doctor in once because we have the ability to watch all of them in quicker succession than back then when they were just one and dones yep so I, I think taking a step back in time and letting it kind of sit for a little bit also helped as well yeah and that makes sense I mean, I think Big Finish are very fortunate in the at this point. They've got their pick of writers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, someone like Simon Gurria, yeah, he's he's a fan, but he is a very good writer. Yeah. I'm, I'm a huge fan. They would not let me write for them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it helps. And, again, the, the quality that they have in their writing, the quality that they have in their music and their sound effects, and then the people that they get for the narration. Obviously, we know Ian obviously he's been around he's he's a really good actor and, and things of that nature but the person that they got for Hypatia was really good as well so since they can get such top-notch talent it works so let's talk a little about Ian and Hypatia because I thought their storyline <laughs> together was pretty funny it's great because one of the things I loved about this is it made mention that things were starting to happen with Barbara which kind of fits narratively with what was happening in the show because Susan's still there. So it's before Susan leaves. And so it wasn't quite as obvious on screen that they were together yet when Susan was still around. Right. Because we talked about it on the Romans. The Romans was the very obvious, okay, something's definitely happening. So to then pair the the potential of what might happen with Ian and Barbara to Ian and Hypatia having such a an intellectual relationship, I think I'll go with, was just kind of really fun. I loved Barbara's anger at the idea that Ian might have been out on a date. It was <laughs> it was adorable. Yeah, it's that both of them have liked each other, but neither one of them wants to actually say something about it. So the moment that one of them is interested in someone else, all of a sudden the other one's upset. It is such a stereotypical trope, but I love it anyway. Yeah. And they almost bring it back and turn it on its head at the end when they're heading back into the TARDIS and Barbara assures him that she's, well, she asks Ian if he's angry at her, and he thinks that she's talking about her jealousy of Hypatia, and of course, it's what they've taken into the TARDIS that she's worried about. I, I just really, really loved it. One thing I was a little surprised about with this was, I don't know how you feel about it, Julie, but I was fully expecting this to basically wrap up once the library had been destroyed, but there's a little bit extra before we disappear off in the TARDIS. Yes, I didn't see that coming. <laughs> With the Rosetta Stone? Me neither. Nope. They wrapped up the battle pretty quickly and the fire and everything. So I was like, wow, well, there's still 10 minutes left. What else are we going to do? And first off, we get the doctor teaching kids. 
Yes. For younger people, right? And oh my gosh, that was so much fun because you can tell that he he's kind of good with kids, but also at the same time, like he doesn't speak to them as if they're kids. And it's a weird play that he has. So he's teaching math with these kids and he's coming up with kind of like the most bizarre items. And the big one was about moving this stone. And so I'm like, well, what's, what's the big deal about moving the stone? Like, yeah, it's a stone. Let's see how how much they can move it, whatever. Then after that going on for like two or three minutes and then all of a sudden he's like, oh yeah, by the way, did you know what stone that was? It's like, what? They're not just trying to move a stone. They're trying to move that stone. I kind of grasped that as soon as it was mentioned that it had three languages on it. I was like, it hasn't been said yet, but it's the Rosetta Stone blatantly. (laughs) I was so excited. Uh, But yeah. I didn't really think to make a connection with the Library of Alexandria and the Rosetta Stone. Me neither. That did not know to even make that connection. One thing I think that's really notable about this story is this is what we've come to know as the kind of pseudo-historical. It's it's set in history, but it has a science fiction element to it, which is something that really came about a bit later on in the show than the era that this is in. Do you think that this works with this TARDIS crew? They probably didn't seem as surprised as they should have been. So while they've seen aliens and such, they really at this point hadn't experienced them during historical earth moments Mm -hmm. i think they should have been more surprised but do i think it works i think it worked fine just maybe throwing a little bit more surprise at the beginning and then i mean the first tardis crew did a fairly decent job of rolling with some of the punches except for obviously at the very very beginning when ian and barbara are just like well mainly ian is like this thing doesn't travel through space and time that's ridiculous right so while i think it's slightly anachronistic in terms of the type of adventure they would have it works yeah yeah i think that placement and everything they could have used a little bit more surprise that oh there were aliens on earth at this time other than throwing that in there's really no need for them to act any differently right so this having been your first big finish experience are you inclined to listen to more short answer is yes (laughs) excellent yeah, it was good. It was short and to the point. Like right now I'm listening to an audiobook that's 47 hours long. Oof. Yeah, I know. So the fact that a lot of these are probably going to be much, much shorter than that, it's kind of a good little quick pick-me-up that I can just do in one sitting or even one walk of my dog and I'll be able to, to finish out a story. So yeah, I could do it again. Yeah, I think that's one of the real joys of these is they are very much written for the audio format. So while with a book that's been transcribed to audio, to your point, is 47 hours long, a big finish is between an hour and two hours for the most part. It's snappy. It's... Yeah. It's the, it's the format it was written for. It just was designed to be that way. And I think that's something that's a real strength of the brand. So with that, do you want to rate this story? Oh, we're going to rate them. Yeah, let's... Like, I mean, I realise we're skipping things like our metrics because this wouldn't count towards yeah. them. But, but I think it would be fun to rate yeah. this. Yeah, all right. So the beginning was a little slow but that does kind of fit into the normal first doctor era but we plot along the first episode is very much a just happy story about them studying in the library of alexandria and everyone's happy until the very very end i think the pacing could have been a little bit better maybe have a little bit longer of a a fight with the mims because the mims were were pretty interesting and they got that rosetta stone at the very end which was just a good surprise that i didn't see coming so overall 
I really enjoyed it. So I'm actually going to give it a 8 out of 10 fluffy tails. Ooh. Yeah, I think I'm very much on the same page as you. For me, I mean, I've listened to a lot more of these than you have, and I tend to prefer the full cast drama to the Companion Chronicle format. But there was something about this that I felt was so evocative of the era. It was probably the soundscape. Everything from the, to your point, the hustle and bustle of the docks through to the little hints of music that were there really reminded me of the kind of thing that we would have seen on screen during season one or the beginning of season two. I thought the men were a great idea. It was a great setting. It's always a delight to hear William Russell. And just the characterization and the way that Simon Gurria scripted this, it felt like it was done with a lot of love for the era and a lot of respect for those characters by someone who really understood what this was meant to be. So from my perspective, I'm going to give this one... I think I'm going to join you. This is going to be eight suckering tentacles. <laughs> so... We'll be back next time for one of our regular episodes. In the meantime, all of our previous episodes, including our first four bonus episodes, are available on your favourite podcasting app. You can interact with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Watchers4D. And as a reminder, you can email us at Watchers4D at gmail.com. We do like to hear from you. And if you are enjoying the show, please do subscribe. Please do leave us a review or a rating on your favourite podcasting app. All of those things really do help the show. But for now, thank you, as always, for listening, and have a good one. You have been listening to a bonus episode of Watchers in the Fourth Dimension with Julie Philippek and myself, Anthony Williams. This episode, Damn It Susan, was recorded on Thursday the 23rd of April 2020. And always remember, there's a huge range of Doctor Who out there on many different types of media. Don't listen to the gatekeepers. You're a fan whether you enjoy absolutely everything or even just one era of the TV show.